The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. Since we began uh, Luke in September, right, the first eight chapters have been, Luke's been really working hard to make sure that O Theophilus knows about all the works that Jesus has done. And through that, Jesus has been revealing more and more of his actions. And throughout this, we've seen this question arise over and over. Who is this? Right? Everyone's asking, who is this man? It's been asked repeatedly by a lot of different people. And while we actually have seen the correct answer to the questions, think about it. Who have we seen it from? Angels, right? At the birth announcement, right? To Mary, uh, to Joseph. Demons, Right? When, when Jesus was opening the scroll and, and teaching the word of God, they were falling at his feet and they were declaring, you are the Holy One of God, you are the Son of God. Right? And the, even and the Father declared him so at his baptism. But we've not actually heard any of his disciples actually declare, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised King. We haven't heard it yet, but today we will hear that truth be declared from Peter, right? And so it's a great day of revelation for the disciples. At least they declare. They may have already believed it back here, but now they profess it. Now they say it. Uh, And so that's where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke. And so the first, like I said, the first eight chapters have been, who is this man? Now we're not going to move on from who is Jesus. We're not done there. But if this is who he is, the next eight chapters are all about if that's true, if we believe that, if we say, yes, Christ is Lord, well, it will have profound impact on what we do and how we live, right? And so so let's look at the scriptures together. Let's look at Luke 9, 18 through 20. Let's begin there. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, Luke Luke's gospel doesn't give us this, but we do know from the other gospel writers that in that moment, Jesus immediately said, you did not figure this out, Peter. My Father who is in heaven revealed this truth to you. And why I think that's important is because don't miss the fact that it's while Jesus is praying. Don't miss the fact that it's while his disciples are praying with him. Many times, man, when we come to the Word of God... Every time we come to the Word of God, we ought to be asking for God to reveal more of who He is. Holy Spirit, help me to see. Open the eyes of my heart. Help me to believe what I profess to be true with my mouth. Help me to truly believe it in my heart, right? And so here you are, and and Peter answers, and it's like winner, winner, lamb kebab dinner in that moment, right? (laughs) Right? Seriously, contrary to popular belief, though, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not. Christ is the Greek rendering for the Hebrew title Messiah, which means anointed one. He is the promised one. Peter confesses that Jesus was the anointed one that Israel had been long longing for. 
Prior to, to Jesus being incarnate, there were 400 years of silence. And Israel was wondering, has our God forgot about us? Well, of course, we can look at the scriptures now and say, no, he hasn't. But they're longing for the promised one. 400 years of silence and nothing. But now, he says, you are the Christ. And, and we probably don't gather all of what's being said with that declaration in our context in the way that we think. right? Jesus is the king of kings who would come. And what, they, what that means to, to the disciples and even to Israel in that moment is finally, the king has shown up onto the scene. And that means he's going to crush all of Israel's enemies. That means that the one we've been waiting for is going to gather all of God's people from all over the, the face of the earth and bring them back to Jerusalem, to the promised land, for all that's going to be. And, and that's exciting for them. This is a time of triumph. And Israel will be this, the epicenter of all the world. And that's what they would expect. And they would expect the perfect reign of God here on earth. Now, finally, now imagine their excitement in that moment. Imagine their excitement. So you'd expect Jesus to kind of fist bump old Pete and give him a pat on the back, right? But he doesn't. He actually doesn't. Let's keep looking. Verse 21 in chapter 9 says, And Jesus strictly charged him, pause, that rendering of translation does not get at what's going on here. And I, only, I don't normally do that to you because I never want you to think you can't read the Bible and know the Word of God for yourself. You can. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I know people who know Greek. I know people who know Hebrew. So you can study. But, but listen, strictly charged, that word in Greek is only used, it's eight times in Luke, and every time it's always rebuke. So why do they switch it here? Well, I don't know, but I don't like it. So he strictly rebuked them and commanded them to tell this to no one. And then he says this, listen, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And listen, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Oh, let's talk about mountaintop moment. The Christ is here. Yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. It's not coming the way you think it is. And you get rebuked. This would be a, 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 I mean, this would be a strange moment, right? Jesus rebukes them. And Peter gave the right answer. He gave the right answer, and yet he still gets corrected, which is odd. J Jesus puts the lockdown immediately on that being spread anywhere. Why? Because no one's going to gather what you're saying. They're all going to draw the conclusion that this means I'm here to bring in the rule and the reign of God in the way that you understand it. But that's not how it's coming. And so why would Jesus do this? Well, one guess is because their answer, even though it's right, it's, it's incomplete or it's lopsided. It's lopsided, right? It's not time to make Israel great again, right? So save your bumper stickers, guys. It's not that time. At least not how they would expect Messiah to do it. And so he, he corrects them. They're thinking too small, by the way. Their yearnings was for an earthly political kingdom that basically handouts whoopings and takes no names and makes Israel great again in the way that they would understand it, which means amazing benefits to us. And Jesus would, would have to correct that thinking. And so although they have the correct title, He's, he's not saying you're wrong, but he's saying, listen, demons get my name right. They say who I am. 
right? So, so it's abundantly clear. Then when he says this, listen, he changes the title. He, he doesn't say the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He says the Son of Man. And look at the word, must. <laughs> must. All oh, these little words matter. That's why I always want you to have the Bible open. I want you to have the Bible in your hands open so you can see. The Son of Man must suffer th- many things. Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And that would have been a complete and utter shock to the disciples. Which, so this is the first point. Jesus the Messiah was not coming to crush the enemies of Israel. Instead, he would be crushed by its leadership as the Son of Man. Many times we have a very distorted understanding of Christ. It's very lopsided. It happens all too easy. See, these things must happen. Must. Capital M-U-S-T. Must happen because God loved the world so much that he sent his son. What did he send him to do primarily? Well, there's a lot of things he sent him to do. Seek and save the lost, right? Destroy Satan and demons and death, right? All these things. But they're all means. All those things were done in order to bring God's people back into the good joy of the Father. And so Jesus was sent on a mission to die. To live a perfect life, to die the death we deserve to die, and to triumphantly resurrect from the grave, making a way for sinners like you and I to enjoy the glad enjoyment of the God of all joy forever. And this must happen. This is how it has to go. There is no other plan. This isn't... This isn't plan B. This is the only plan. Must happen. Right from the get-go, he goes and says it. There's nothing outside of God, by the way, that forces him to do anything he does not wish to do. Nothing. So don't mix it up thinking, well, he had to do it. He didn't have to do it. He longed to do it. He wanted to do it. He joyfully did it. But he did not have to do it. He willingly did it. Why? Because Jesus' suffering is is rooted in God's free decision to take away the sins of the people and restore them to himself. He loved to do it. He longed to do it. Jesus willingly did it. No one made him do it. And so Jesus, by the way, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the scandalous love of God for hell-bound sinners. If you lose this, you have no gospel. Make no mistake about it. It's the heart You take the heart out, it's dead. Jesus asked the disciples, he says, then, who do you say that I am? And we both, listen, we all must be ready to answer that most important question. Right? Who do you believe and understand Jesus to be is of eternal importance? You know, there are many people um, who believe they're, they're paying Jesus some kind of homage, like homage, like giving him some props by calling him some good things. Right? Um, like Prophet Jesus, for instance. M- millions who embrace Islam believe that Jesus was a prophet, that he's the greatest of prophets. But he's definitely not God, they would say. They're missing the mark, by the way, has eternal consequences. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says explicitly all throughout the Gospels, I am. And the Father, we are one, we worship one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. And Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And to just say, well, he's a good prophet, does not please him. 
And that understanding and decision has eternal consequences. Okay, but how about this? Imaginary Jesus, right? So we've got prophet Jesus. Imaginary Jesus is, is in a lot of people's minds and hearts too. And they show up on a lot of Sundays, by the way. You may be one of them. I don't say that to insult you because I'm just trying to use this as smelling salts to get you out of your drunken stupor so you can see Christ for who he is. But imaginary Jesus, some believe that Jesus is, is just a product of wishful thinking or imagination in order to keep people in line. <laughs> How's that working? Not well. Not well. Uh, there's a man named Bart Ehrman, not a friend of Christian evangelical. He would say he is. He's not. He said this at the idea that Jesus never existed. He said this, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus never existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. So he does not love Jesus. But he's saying, if you think he didn't exist, you're an ignoramus. But who you say he is, well, that, that can, we can debate that. But there's no debate saying, did he exist? That's what he's saying in that, if you were able to track with that. How about moral teacher Jesus? This one's popular. I don't know why. Right? This is super popular by people who want to be considered very nice and inclusive. Really, it is. You know, like Jesus was born a good man, even the best of men. He's a, a great moral example to all of us. He just went around just, you know, tossing social justice to everyone, healing everyone, hugging and kissing all the children. You know, if you were hungry, he would take your Lunchable and feed your town. <laughs> right? This, this is embraced over and over in Christianity. You kind of like Gandhi or maybe the Dalai Lama, except for the whole sucking of the tongue thing. Right? If you don't know what that means, it's been all over the news. You know it's bad when you're being rebuked by Cardi B. <laughs> That's not good. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. And so listen to what he says. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. There's the foolish sentence, okay? And here's what he says about that. That is one thing we must not say. Oh, that almost went down. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense that his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. And this goes on and on, right? You got prosperity, Jesus, flat, brill, flat bimmed hat, right? Cash falling out of his pocket, you know, just throwing it to everybody. How about Rambo, Jesus? He just wants to fight to make America great again. Oh, you're like, well, that's too close to home. How about socialist Jesus, right? He just wants to redistribute the wealth, right? And make sure that everyone has all the social justice they could ever long for. How about pop culture, Jesus, right? Where he's kind of like your jellyfish homeboy, 
It's whatever you want. It goes. I'm cool with it. You do you, bro. Or sis. Whatever makes you happy. Listen, however, none of these things will do. None of these things will do. We must understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, what does that mean? He's God's eternal son who came in human flesh, who was crucified, who was buried, who was raised on the third day, who was ascended to the Father, who sits at the Father's right hand, who mediates the relationship between a holy, righteous, just, good God and a sinful, wretched humanity. And there is no way to bridge those two apart from God who came in Christ and the Lamb of God who then willingly took away the sins of the world, making a way for you to come to the throne of grace and receive. That's who he is. He's so much more than that, by the way. He now rules and reigns in heaven. And one day he will rip open the sky and he will raise the living and the dead and he will judge them. And those who are in Christ, he will send to everlasting joy and life with the Father. And those who have not received Christ and the forgiveness of sins that can only happen because of what he accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection will spend eternity. And I do not say this flippantly or with any kind of ha-ha in my heart apart from him in a real place called hell. And that's where I would be if Christ had not rescued me from my rebellion against God. And he loved to do it, and he still loves to do it. This is who he is. And so today, I mean, like, to say I've received Jesus could possibly mean absolutely nothing unless you ask as what? Or as who? This matters, right? We, We must receive him for who he is, not who you want him to be. He won't allow it. He won't allow it. But as who he really is, he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He is the Savior, the only Savior, the only one. He is the wrath remover. He is the sin forgiver. He's a righteousness provider, which you and I desperately need. He's living water. He's the bread of life. He is a soul satisfier. He is the Lamb of God, and He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This man is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you and I have no right to say or make Him anything that He is not. So when you say, I've received Christ, have you received him as who he is? Have you? I pray you have. Because then to enjoy Jesus and life with him goes on forever. But you must believe this. There's no other way. And and this is where repentance comes in. Repentance is a change of mind, but it's changing your mind that you know the way and trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and you are who you say you are. And so you turn from living your life as little K king, ruling and reigning in your own little heart, doing the things you want to do, stop and say, I surrender, put my gun down, I'm done warring against you, you've made a way for peace. That way for peace is Jesus Christ and I receive that peace and I follow you. Oh, we make him into so many things he's not. If you want to understand Jesus, read your Bible. But that's not helpful most times because everybody says that and we just stay stuck. Yes, read your Bible. Absolutely. But I'll tell you another way. To understand the man is to understand his mission. 
And he's going to unpack his mission. Matter of fact, chapter 9 is all about a 30,000 foot view of what does it mean to follow Jesus. And I'm going to give you a lot more information after that. But if you understand 9, you understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so this is why we're slowing down. This is why we're taking time to understand. But know this. We've been saying this a lot. Being always must precede doing. That's why I'm slowing down right now. Because if I get into, you know, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus, some of you are going to get very excited about that, and I hope you do. But you might get excited about that for the wrong reasons, because you start to think that this is all about you and what you do. And it might just be another means of you trying to earn the, the favor of God. I'm good, they're bad. No. You were dead, he made you alive. That's why you follow him. Being always has to precede doing. But if you say, I believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that everything you just said, he is, and so much more, well then, listen, doing will happen. Why? Because you are made new. You're born again. You have a new love. I love him. I'll follow him. I want him. Right? And so, he goes right into verse 23, and he said to them, listen, he said to all of them, he said, if you would come after me, if you're going to follow me, anyone who wants to do that, listen, let him, her, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. By the way, I, I just have to stop, pause for a moment. This is not some special command just for the disciples of that time. It's not just for the apostles. We have no reason to think that this is for everyone who professes and confesses that Christ Jesus is Lord. You must deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. This is what he's saying. In order to be saved? No. Don't get it wrong. You, because you are. Um, this, is what, this is what saved people do. This is not some special class of Christian. That's for those missionary folks. No, this is for all people who, who profess Jesus is the Christ. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we embrace his dying on the cross for us, yes, but we also accept the reality of the cross for ourselves. That's exactly what he's saying. And if you want a different Jesus, too bad, there's not one. Now you could make one up in your heart and your mind, you could worship that little fake deity the rest of your life, but it will not... It will not bring you into everlasting joy because that God doesn't exist. That's why it so matters. Right? Look, look at verses 23 through 27 because they so logically follow from verse 22. Right? I mean, if Jesus is headed for suffering and rejection, then his disciples will face the same as well. That's exactly what he's saying. If you want to come after or follow Jesus and as his disciple, then you must, must deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. This is what disciples do. Well, I don't want to be a disciple. I just want to be a Christian. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I hear it often. I'm serious. Well, I'm not a disciple. I'm a Christian. What? What does that even mean? I know what it means, and I'm not going to take that rabbit trail. Keep coming back. I will take it one day, but we got a lot to go. Deny yourself. What does denying yourself mean? Essentially, it just means being dethroned. 
That's what it means. You're no longer the captain of your own ship. Right? You're willing to give up your ability to make decisions without being directed by anyone else. You give up the right of being autonomous or self-governed. Now, Jesus rules. Now, He's always ruled. You just were in rebellion to His rule. Well, that's what it means, right? You remove yourself from the center of your universe. You recognize that Jesus is the one who rules and reigns the universe, and that includes you. This is good news, by the way, because he's not some angry deity who doesn't want your eternal joy. He died for you. <laughs> if, if he loves you that much, I think he could trust them with the, the commute to work or whatever it might be that you're like, I don't know if I want to do that. Right? Like, oh, you, be a thinking people. Meditate on these words. Consider them. Don't just gloss over them. And they will transform your life. Jesus is going to get into your life and he's going to mess up your hair. And if he doesn't, you're not worshiping Jesus. If your Jesus never makes you uncomfortable, you've not met Jesus. Sorry. You haven't. You haven't. He's going to call you to do very hard things. But he's done the hardest thing. He went to the cross, received the wrath of God in our place, and he says, now follow me. I think that's a good man to follow. You can trust him. So he says, deny yourself. This call, by the way, this call to deny yourself is hostile to the air we breathe. <laughs> we breathe in a culture that elevates self above all else. Love yourself. Forgive yourself. Pamper yourself. Do whatever makes you happy. On and on and on. And Jesus comes along and says, actually, deny yourself. Ah, I don't really like that. I really like love yourself. By the way, Jesus never says to love yourself because he implies, he understands you are. <laughs> no one loves you more than you. <laughs> no one loves me more than me. Right? That's why he says love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying you definitely love yourself. <laughs> and if you love your neighbor like that, we'll be good. So we don't need instructed to love ourselves. You're doing it. And you're like, not me, I hate myself. You love yourself more than anybody if you say that. It's just self-loathing. But it's still love of self, I promise you. If you need help unpacking that, let's grab a coffee. John Stott says this. He says, to, not, to, to deny ourselves is to behave towards ourselves as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. He said the verb is the same. He disowned him. He repudiated him. He turned his back on him. Self-denial is not denying to ourselves luxuries such as chocolate, cakes, cigarettes, cocktails, although it might include these. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny ourselves is to turn from the idolatry of self-centeredness. That's what he's saying in denying yourself. In case you didn't get it, he says then, pick up your cross. Follow me. Well, what's that mean? Jesus looks good on a t-shirt. Well, let's think about it. This this last week, you know, we had, we had Monday, Thursday. We had Good Friday. We had Easter Sunday. I was talking to a friend of mine, and this friend said, hey, got a question for you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word cross? And you could answer that right now. And, and probably your answer would be great because it's the first thing that came to your mind. 
I said, an instrument of death. And he just paused because he was not wanting me to say it. I think he wanted me to say a lot of things. But I said, an instrument of death. And he goes, really? That's the first thing? That's his first thing. <laughs> we did have a delightful conversation after that. This man is a Christian. He loves the Lord. He said, I was thinking about like love and mercy. And those are all there. They are. It's just the first thing that came to my mind. Right? But here's the thing. I think our modern understanding familiarity with the cross we see it as a piece of jewelry I wore it as a piece of jewelry before Jesus saved me that's strange I think I looked at it as a luck charm right kind of like people do with crystals now right like rub it in something but like it looked cool you know unbutton my shirt you know and there it is but it's strange when you understand it right like why are you wearing that, right? It's all over the church sometimes, right? Pick up your cross, though, as a scandal. Why? Because people say things like this. Well, I'm bearing my cross, and what they mean by that is my mother-in-law is a monster, right? Um, I, I have some illnesses. I have some challenges. That's my cross to bear. But i got to tell you, that's not accurate. In Jesus' day, a cross was a cruel method of execution, Kind of be like, if we want to just wear some, I don't know, electric chairs around our neck and just walk around. <laughs> Every, yeah, I'm going to wear like a noose. Wouldn't that be strange? Well, it's very strange that we wear crosses. I'm not saying you're wrong for doing that, but I was wrong for doing that, thinking it would buy me some street cred with Jesus. Right? See, the pain of crucifixion was so horrendous that they, they actually came up with a new word to explain it. It was called excruciating. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. So it makes me think when I stub my toe and I say, I'm in excruciating pain. Okay, no, you're not. It does hurt, though. It does. But you're not hanging naked on a piece of wood dying, right? Okay, you're going to make it, bud. So, so Jesus says to take up your cross. What does that mean? Well, at the most baseline level, it simply means to be ready to die for Jesus' sake. That's what it means. Now, thankfully, it almost always doesn't come to that, right? That's why he says the word daily. <laughs> that word matters, right? right? I'm going to go be a martyr for Jesus. Well, you may be, and God will give you the grace to do that if that's his call in your life. But this word daily matters. What does it mean? Well, to pick up your cross means that you're willing to receive opposition for loving Christ. That's one thing it means. The cross was used to execute criminals who opposed the state of Rome in, and were in opposition to them. So you are willing to accept opposition. It also meant that you were willing to accept shame. Right? Because execution upon a cross was, it was reserved for the worst of criminals. Absolutely the worst of criminals. And, and they would strip them down, they would beat them, they would hang them up naked on the cross for hours until they died. And that was a shameful thing. People would come by, they would spit upon them. They would, they would actually, we always picture them way high up there, as much lower to the ground so that people could look you in the eye, spit in your eye, throw things at you, do things to you. Women, they crucified facing the cross because they didn't want to look at the woman's face. It was shame. And it happened for hours. And ours, which included lots of suffering, as you might imagine. So to pick up our cross means we embrace opposition, shame, suffering, right? 
Suffering, because it's just the worst of deaths. I don't have to go into the details. You get it. But then it also includes we embrace death. Death. Everyone's dying, by the way. Everyone's dying. It doesn't just mean that. This is torture. We were willing, as Christians, to deny ourselves the life we think we want, the thing we think we know, pick up our cross. This is what it means. Oh, how different that is from the Disneyland that we create as Christians often. I mean, seriously. Therefore, when Jesus said to follow him, to take up your cross, he meant at least this. And I say at least this because we got eight more chapters to go where he's going to continue to unpack it. Be willing to be opposed, to be shamed, to suffer, to die for your allegiance with him. With him. So point two, this call to a crucified life demands a willingness to pour out one's life for the sake of Christ. Not so he'll love you, but because he has loved you. And this is your response to love. That's what it means. Jesus is talking about dying to your old way of life. Right? Crucifying the old self-centered way of living. That's what he's saying. Following Jesus is kind of like a death because in every area of your life is going to be radically transformed. It is going to be. It will be. If you follow him, it will. That means your finances. It's not your finances. God, thank you for all the blessings. How can I be a good steward of everything you've given me? And it's going to inform the way you make decisions. Right? More on that to come because Jesus loves to talk about this because he knows as humans we love money because we find so much comfort and security in it. And he wants you to find your comfort and your security and your satisfaction in him. Right? How about your ambitions? Jesus is going to have something to say about that. How about your sexuality? How about your entertainment? How about your identity and relationships? Everything is going to be brought into conformity with Christ if you say you follow him. And you're going to be transformed. You're going to be changed. If Jesus has never made you uncomfortable and you said, I've got to die of that even though that's, I, that's a desire I want, you have to ask yourself, what Christ are you following? And you're like, this is making me uncomfortable, Pastor Scott. Can we have a happy sermon? This is a happy sermon. And it's about to get much happier in a minute. But you got to feel the weight of it. Why? Because it's weighty. It's weighty. Every one of those men, the 12 apostles that are hearing this message, will die a martyr's death except for one. And John will be dipped in boiling oil and sent to an island. And it's not like Survivor where they slip them rice and no one loses weight. That's their life. They're going to be called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And, but we have done this thing where we think, well, that's not what it means to be a Christian now. Now we just get crown and no cross. To our shame. James Davidson Hunter said this. He said, the coming generation, fascination. By the way, I'm in this. The fascination. Don't be like, oh, okay, boomer. No, I'm in it, right? Fascination with the self and with our own ways of seeing things has become a well-established cultural feature of evangelicalism. Self-focus is part of the modern evangelical identity. This is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians care little about the glory of God or reaching a lost world. 
For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, their marriages, their bank accounts, their prestige. But to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Christ, no thanks. Is that you? By the way, if that is you, and you're feeling, that's me. That's kindness. That's kindness. Because what you can do is you don't have to run from that. That's the Holy Spirit revealing truth to you. And you can run to Christ who gives grace, who gives mercy, who empowers you to be transformed. So if you're feeling it, don't run. Oh, I'm feeling a little condemnation. Push that aside. No, feel it. Embrace it. Drag it into the light. Be changed. Confess your sins. Right? It's exactly what the Bible says. And He is righteous. He is just. He is kind to forgive you all your sins and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness and to bring about the transformation that makes you more like Christ. Following Jesus is all about faith and repentance. This is who Christ is. This is who I am and how I'm acting. That's not how Jesus is acting. I need to change my mind that His way is better. Welcome to it. This is your life till you die. You don't arrive until you arrive, right? And that means Jesus comes back or you're dead. But, well, this doesn't sound like fun at all. Hang in there. But let's just recognize the fact. It appears that Jesus would make a terrible salesman. He would. I was in sales for years. This is not how you get people to sign on the dotted line. This is a ton of bricks. Deny myself, hmm. Pick up a cross. Whoa. Follow me. Where are you going? I'm going to die. <sighs> Can we go to Aruba? <laughs> In these things, listen, Jesus violates every principle of what people would say is effective evangelism by the church's growth strategies. Every one of them. Any marketer would tell you that Jesus, if you want people to follow you, you should, I, you should you know, talk about the bennies. Talk about the benefits. Talk about what might draw people in. Get them there. You know, have some fun. Jesus, lighten up, bro. This is why, listen, much of the reason we want nothing to do with the church. This is why many people want nothing to do with the church. The church. Not just this church. The church. Why? Because many times people grew up in youth group and then they went on to college and they had youth group 2.0. And what's that about? What's well, about you? <laughs> it really is. I mean, they throw some, some Jesus stuff in there and give you some spirit sprinkles, but it's all about you. And then you come to the church and the church is, it's not, ready? Ready? It's not about you. Uh, I want to find a church that is. And then you go to the church that is and you just miss Jesus. I'm telling you, this happens. And by the way, that's not a knock on big church because you can be a big church and do it right. I'm talking about methodology. But, but here's the deal. What, what does it show? I mean, people are deconstructing and sometimes that's an okay thing, but most times it's not. They're walking away from the church in big numbers and they're having church at the coffee shop, all three of them, and they say, hey, where well, there's two or more gathered, oh, there's the church. Keep reading. It's not what it says. What does it show? The numbers are in. Here's what it shows. We want someone to save our souls but not run our lives. That's what it shows. But you don't get to have that. That option is not available. Jesus won't have it. 
well, what if I just read the first nine, eight chapters of Luke? I get healed and I get all these things. No, you don't get to dissect Jesus like that. No, we, we want someone to save our souls. That means he rules our world. You don't get another Jesus. So Jesus doesn't leave that as an option. But okay, I told you it would get into some really good benefits. You ready? Look at 24 through 27. Oh, how I love this word. For. F-O-R. That's a really good word. For, 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 for. Whew, you should like it too. It means because. Listen. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, that sounds good, and lose or forfeits himself? Oh, not so much. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, and the glory of the Father, and the glory of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. By the way, that last sentence we're going to talk about next week. So I'm not avoiding it. Come next week because there's too much to unpack there, okay? But don't miss this. This little word for at the beginning of verse 24, 25, and 26. Why? Because Jesus is giving people concrete reasons, incentives for taking the, the path of denial and picking up their cross. By the way, it's, it's, a, it's a glorious, ready for a fancy word? might not be fancy to you. Paradox. I like that word. It's a paradox. A paradox is a seemingly like contradictory statement. But actually, when you investigate, it, it proves to be true. And that's what we have here. So, point three, paradoxically, the call to pick up your cross is a call to come and save your life. You should focus on these words this week. You should meditate on them. You should pray, should ask the Holy Spirit to help you see, right? Because Jesus' words reveal the only way to life, life, is through embracing the crucified Christ and being a crucified follower. That's what he's saying. And by the way, we die daily so that we might live fully in this life, in the life to come. He's not trying to take life from you. He's giving you life. He is life. He has come that you might have life and have it abundantly, he's saying. But the only way to have that is follow me. Deny yourself. You've been running your life your whole entire existence. How you doing? How you doing? You and I make horrible gods. You're like, yeah, but if I just had power. You and I make horrible gods. Don't believe me? Look around. America has access to, oh my goodness, so much. And we're just blowing it. Why? Because we think we know the best. Now, by the way, I love America. I'm thankful to live here. But, but you don't get it. This ain't the way to life is having you on the throne. This is the life of a disciple. It is a hard life. But it's the best life. Look at the paradox. Loss for gain. Shame for glory. That's what he's saying. The marks of a crucified disciple is that they treasure Jesus more than they treasure lifetime of fame and glory in this world. Whatever you have, I embrace it, Lord. Why? Because you are life. You're where life is found. 
And so I receive it. By God's grace, we join the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember, you and I are saved solely and wholly because of Christ's work, not because of our following him. We are. Jesus has reserved a place in heaven for you and I by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that, that receiving brings about a transformed life. And it doesn't happen in an instant. In one sense, it does. You go from being dead in your sins to being alive in Christ. You go from being in Adam to being in Christ, right? You go from, you you become a new creation. The old has passed away. In one sense, it's in an instant. It's the moment you believe. I believe that message. But the transformation of you becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like yourself is the lifetime of following Jesus. There will be times you won't deny yourself. You'll put down the cross and you'll say, no, I don't want to do that today. And thankfully, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit and he says, no, this is where life is found. Don't go that way. Don't veer off the path because that's not, that's destruction. Here's life. And it's narrow, but I'm with you. And therefore, you're going you're gonna to make it. You and I never boast in anything. We take no credit for our standing with God. None. I'm a great disciple. That means you're great at dying daily. But even that's a gift. That's the work of God in your life. That's not you. And yet it is you. If we want to boast, we boast in the cross. We, we, we ultimately, I, we boast in Jesus who went to the cross. We boast in Christ Jesus. We magnify Jesus. When we say boast in the cross, Paul means the crucified Savior of the world. He's not saying the instrument of death. It's what it, what it means, what it signifies. We boast in Jesus. We magnify Christ. We glory in Christ. We boast in what he has done. And then we rest fully in it. We rest fully in it. So to boast is, think about it, it's to joyously exalt, right? It, it's, it's to have, have high confidence in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. To know you are saved by Christ's work alone brings about joyous boasting. Why? Because all the pressure's off. All the pressure. He's done it all. He's done everything. Why wouldn't you follow him? We don't want self-confidence. We want Christ's confidence. The world is going to tell you have self-confidence, but that's fragile. Because eventually you get chubby like me, right? And then it's like, oh, I'll go into the pool. I'll wear a swimmer shirt. Just kidding. I don't wear it. If you want to, go ahead. But if you put your hope in your career, in your relationships, in your bank account, in these things... It's too fragile. Jesus is the only place to find solid ground. He's the only place. So, because of what he has done and because of who he is, by God's grace, deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow him to everlasting joy. That would be my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for the beautiful news that Christ has come to save sinners like us. Jesus, we give you praise. We thank you. We truly boast in you alone. We thank you for the stunning transformation that you do in in a believer's life. Lord, help us by faith to, to say this world is dead to us because we're alive to you. Help us be so alive in you. Holy Spirit, help us. Oh, how we need your help to do this. And oh, I'm so thankful you're willing. Not only are you willing, but you're able. Not only are you able, but you love to do this work for the glory of the Father. And we ask that you do it in the name of the beautiful Christ we love and we worship. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.